All right, 1 Timothy, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise be to God. You can have a seat. Let me let me pray, and we'll look in, into this long and vast set of verses. Right? Everyone's used to Luke. We were reading like a whole chapter at a time, and now it's two verses. So, all right. Let me pray, Lord. Uh, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this little letter that Paul, uh, under the inspiration of your spirit, wrote to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we begin um, this series, as we look uh, through this book, as we read it, as we study it, as I uh, attempt to preach it as well as uh, I can, uh, Lord, I pray that you would cause our hearts to be surrendered to it. Lord, might we uh, come under your word, might we stand on your word, might we stand behind your word, Lord, um, never put ourselves over it, but always looking to it uh, in all things. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would grace us with the ability to do that, I ask in your name, amen. So when I was a, a kid, uh, my, my parents uh, built a house, okay? So I don't know if you ever, uh, maybe your family, maybe you have built a house um, and you've been there along for the ride in the process. Um, I remember the first time we went out to the property after my parents bought it, it was uh, just solid woods, you know? You, you, we couldn't even park on the side of the street where the house was going to be because it was so densely wooded. We had to park on the opposite side of the street. And then I remember the next time we went out, and from a kid's perspective, it seemed like it was forever between these two uh, times. Uh, but the next time we went out, you know, there was a couple of, there were some trees gone, there was some dirt that had been moved, and there was a concrete hole in the ground, right? It's like concrete box. Wow. You've been doing, what have they been doing? You know? I thought we were going to build a house. It's just a hole in the ground. But it's a critical step. The foundation is a critical step. Without a good foundation, a house can't stand. In fact, if you tried to build a house without a foundation, most likely the walls would fall down before you even got them all up. And if not, they would fall down shortly after, right? It wouldn't take long before they wouldn't be able to stay up. Even still, as important as a foundation is, as important as that concrete basement it was, uh, we didn't sit down in the middle of the concrete basement and look at each other and go, wow, what a delightful house we have to live in now, right? You know, we needed walls, we needed a, a roof. Like without a roof, you know, getting the water off, whatever, would cause problems even for the foundation, Right? Instead, we walked through the basement, and we imagined where the walls would be. We imagined where, up, you know, up above this basement, where the, the kitchen might be, whatever. And I tried in my 
my, you know, however old I was, eight-year-old mind or whatever, I tried to imagine, you know, it was hard to, to get a picture of that. Well, fast forward a couple of months or whatever, and we go back out to the house, and the house has been framed out. You know, there's, there's uh, framing, wood framing everywhere. On the inside, there's no drywall. It's all open, but the, but the walls are framed. And you can kind of get an idea of where the hallway is going to be, and you can get an idea of where the, the dining room is going to be, and the kitchen, and where the bedrooms are. And now, now all of a sudden, I'm able to kind of be, begin to imagine better, get a feel for the rooms, get a better idea of what, where things will go. But not everything seemed great for us. You see, while the the kitchen and the dining room flowed pretty nicely into uh, and pretty openly into the family room. It, it, there was this two-foot wall that stuck out on the one side, and it kind of it kind of blocked just just a little bit the flow from the dining room into the family room. It kind of restricted the movement, if you will, and it just. It wasn't very pleasant, and you could tell even in, it was just two-by-four framing that, ah, oh, this is just not, this doesn't seem right. And I remember sitting there at eight years old, watching my parents, you know, they're talking to my uncle about it, and, you know, they're doing the thing that, that you do as adults, you know, and from a kid's perspective, it's like, they're standing over here, it's like, wah, 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 like peanuts, you know, and, wah, wah, and they're pointing at it, and they're looking at it, and, and you're sitting there, you know, and you're like, I, I don't know what they're talking about, but they really don't like this wall, Right? And then I remember my, my parents walked off and my uncle went to the, his truck and he got his tools and he came back in and he tore the wall down. That's what he did. He's like, well, they decided they didn't like that wall and they got rid of it. He got rid of it. Now, problem solved, right? Well, once the house was built, whenever anyone was walked down the hallway upstairs over where that that, that opening was between the dining room and the family room, the house creaked. From day one, whenever anyone walked down the hall through into what would have been the master bedroom above the family room, the house would creak and, you, and the ceiling just ever so slightly bowed under the weight of people walking upstairs. Why? Because it turned out that two-foot wall had a purpose. It had a purpose. And sure, the, the, the flow of traffic was restricted. The, the sight line between the dining room and the kitchen and the family room was restricted. But it turned out that that just little short, just two feet of wall, I mean, just three studs, had a purpose. The gospel, friends, is the foundation for the household of God. It's critical. Without that foundation, the church is never built. If the God-man, Jesus Christ, doesn't live a perfect life, die on the cross to atone for all of those who are united with him by faith, and then rise from the dead to win victory over sin, death, and Satan, there is no church. It doesn't matter what amount of building materials you come up with. It doesn't matter how good someone could stand up here and talk. It doesn't matter how well we can play instruments or sing songs. It doesn't matter anything. Without the gospel, there is no church. It doesn't exist. That foundation is absolutely necessary. Now, you could call it a church, but it's not church without the gospel. But there's an opposite temptation as well. And that temptation is to say that so long as we get the, the foundation right, so long as we have the foundation 
The rest is really up to whatever, you know? Turns out that where you put walls matters. It matters. Different walls may matter more or less. Sure, that's for certain. But if we start getting walls in the wrong places, the house becomes unsound. It becomes unsound. You may have a great basement, but, but listen, if it fills up with water every time it rains because you didn't get the house above it right, then that's not, yeah, some of you are like, no, don't go there. <laughs> I don't want to go home after the storms this morning, no. Um, if it fills up with water, that's, 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 not, that's no fun. It's unsound. It, 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 it will still be a church because you got the gospel, but it will grow more and more unhealthy as a church. The good news is that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gave instructions to Timothy about some of the walls that we are to build on this gospel foundation. And we're going to, as we go through the book of 1 Timothy, we're going to see some of these, these things, how to deal with false teaching, gender roles in the church, church leadership, dealing with different various threats, how do we care for those who are in need, and how do we warn those who have plenty in the church. Those are walls that we have to build on the gospel foundation in order to be a healthy church, or as I'm saying it here, how we be a strong church. God has a blueprint for strong churches. And my main point for this Sunday and my main point for this series is this. We must follow God's blueprint for His church. We must follow God's blueprint for His church. Paul, knowing this, sets up his, his letter very carefully, and, he, and, he, and it gives us two reasons why we must follow God's blueprint. Okay, So I want to give you this morning two reasons why we as a church have to follow God's blueprint. We can't just do it our own way. First, because it is orders from the builder. It's orders from the builder. God builds his church. He knows how it is to be built and how it is built, how it can be built to last. Second, because it's actually blessings from the owner. So it's orders from the builder and it's blessings from the owner. God is not only owner, but he desires to bless everyone who comes into his house with his house, right? And so we must follow his blueprint. Let's look at these two as we look at this greeting from Paul to Timothy. Let's unpack what Paul is saying here. These two verses that typically, as you probably are reading this letter, you would just, we just scan over, right? We just kind of read them real quick and we go on to the next thing. Let's get to the meat of the message. But I think there's actually something for us here. And so as we look at verse one, we want, let's talk about what the orders are from the builder. This letter is from Paul and he describes himself how? As an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, apostle almost always refers to someone, when, when it's used in the New Testament, almost always refers to someone who's uniquely appointed by Jesus himself to a unique task in that time. And it always refers to that when it's used with the phrase, of Jesus Christ. So whenever it says, apostle of Jesus Christ, always, 100% of the time, it's talking about someone who was uniquely appointed by Jesus himself in, in person, right? For a unique task in that time. Thus, Paul's authority to speak 
on these things is not of himself. This isn't just Paul's opinion. It's not just like, well, here's how Paul thought maybe it should go. This is God's word to us, right? God's word first to the church in Ephesus and then to us. Why does that matter? Well, growing up in that house we built, right, after it was done with creaking, ceiling and all, um, you know, there were times when I would do whatever, maybe not something so deliberately disobedient. Parents, you know what this is like when your kids don't do something deliberately disobedient, but something you don't like, something that maybe annoys you, something that maybe they don't realize it, but it's not the most, you know, respectful of, of the things around you know, they put their feet on the, the couch or whatever if you're a non-couch foot person. Uh, and, 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 my, and so I'd do something like that, and my dad would say to me, hey, you know, when you have your own house, you can do it your way. But this is my house, and so we're going to do it my way. Okay, okay, dad, you know. Now, I don't know, I've never really pulled that card out when he comes over to my house. Maybe I should next time, but that's a different story. Anyway, he rightly had the position to make what we might call house rules. It was, it was his house. He had built it. He was paying for it, right? It was his responsibility. He was the head of the house, and he had house rules, and that was his to determine. Who gets to order the church? Who gets to make the house rules, if you will? Paul sets the fact straight in the first lines here. One, he says, uh, by command, by order of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. God is Savior, the Father created the church, and Jesus is our hope. He completes the church. And so the Trinitarian creator God, by right of creation, by right of completion, decides the rules for his house. Let's look at each of those Briefly, first the Father created the church, right? It says God our Father, God our Father is called Savior. Now, I don't know, when you read that, maybe you thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I would have expected Jesus to be called Savior, right? Usually the person of Jesus we refer to as Savior. But actually, in New Testament usage, Father is, is actually titled Savior more often than, than Jesus is. Why is that? I had to stop and think about this for a second. Why, why is that? In what way is, is God, the Father, right, our Savior? Well, it was the Father who planned salvation from eternity past, who elects those to be saved and adopted. In a sense, He drew the, up the blueprints for salvation. He set the game plan. He said, this is how it's going to go. He determined that before the foundation of the world, church, that you and I would be saved. Do you get that? Before he drew up the blueprints for the world, he drew up the blueprints for his church. Is that not amazing? His plan to send his son set from eternity past. For God to become man and die is the most precious truth to those who believe. Why would we not also view His order for the church, His command for the church, as equally blessing? We trust Him for His plan to get us into the church, 
Why would we not trust Him for His plan for the church? And so when His orders, or when His order for the church doesn't make sense to you, ask yourself, does, does how He saved me, did it make, does it make sense to my human mind sometimes? Because my guess is sometimes you go, and that, that, that God would die on a cross? Man, I would have never imagined doing it that way. I would have never thought. And so naturally, if God's ways are His ways and not our ways, right? And His thoughts are His thoughts and not our thoughts, then there's probably some ways in which He wants His church to function that we may not immediately get. But He knows His best. Second, Christ completes the church. Our hope, Paul says, is Jesus. Jesus was the first fruits of resurrection, right? And we can expect that since He lives and is glorified, so will we who are in Him. And so in that way, He is our hope. But we usually only think of that in an individual sense, right? Jesus uh, uh, rose from the dead, and so I know that I will rise again as well. I will be with Him. I will be glorified. We think of it in an individual way, which there's truth there, but But why don't we think more about it in a corporate way? I mean, in fact, in Paul's earlier letter to this church, in Ephesians chapter 5, that is precisely the way that he thinks about it. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says that Jesus will present the church to himself without blemish. He's not talking about you individually. He's talking about his church corporately. Okay? Jesus doesn't say, oh, come on, I'm working on it, guys. He says, I'll do it. He doesn't say, I'm trying my best to be a good husband, to to present the church without blemish. He says, it will be done. That's a promise. The church is not only pictured, friends, as a house, but also as a city in the Bible. Abraham looked forward to this city, the church, though he never saw it with his living eyes. He saw it by faith. He saw that the Messiah would come and do it. He had what you'd call a long-term view. And by contrast, the Bible tells us that everyone with a short-term view ended up being idol worshipers instead. So we get to look back. We have the privilege of looking back to how God created the church through what Jesus did, but we We get to look around and see the church right now, but in what do we put our hope for the church in the future? Do we put it in how many people are in the pews today versus last week? Or how much money is in the offering? Do we put it in the most recent news headlines or what we think is happening in the world? Do we put that hope in the newest church fad or technique? Or do we put that hope in Jesus and His Word? If our hope is in anything but Christ, if we think that we have a better way than what His Word says, then we are not making Christ followers. We're making idol worshipers. That's what we're making. Considering God's work over a long span of history really reveals two faith issues that we have to deal with Uh, for uh, those of us who live in the short term, right? 
for those of us who have a hard time viewing things outside of very short spurts of time, and your life is really a very short spurt of time, the church has been around for how long? Our life is just this very brief period. And so two things are challenging to us, motivation and perspective. Perspective is an issue because we have to ask, will I trust that the plans of the eternal God really will work even if I won't be around to see it? Right? There are things that God will ask us to do as a church today that we may never see the fruit of. And if we determine our obedience based on our perspective of what the fruit is, if we determine how we function as a church based on our perspective, our short-term perspective of what might be success, we will fail to do the things that will make for long-lasting results. Because we can't see it. And some will say, well, that command or that principle was fine then in the past, but now things are different, so we need to do things differently. But what, but what perspective do we have to say such a thing to a God who has consistently grown His church for 2,000 years? Who, who are you to speak to God about church growth? How arrogant do we become sometimes, Right? I mean, it's, it's so easy to slip into. We all do it. I do it. You do it. We all do it. The first Timothy is going to humble us. It's going to humble us some. Listen, there's things that we might not think are working today. That, that, that doesn't seem to be working today. But maybe we are too short-sighted, only considering the results in our time and not considering or acting according to faith in what God says He'll do, ultimately. And so perspective is an issue. Also, motivation becomes an issue uh, that this reveals. Um, football season is upon us, right? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm personally thankful for that. Not, it's not everyone's thing. I get it, but um, it's coming soon. And uh, one of the sad realities is uh, a football season is that uh, the reality of a new coach right? A new, a new college football coach uh, has so much pressure to win this season, right? If you don't win this season, then you're out. Doesn't matter if you won five seasons ago or 10 seasons ago. What have you done for me lately? Their success is measured in wins right here this year without regard for long-term stability, without regard for how the lives of the young men they coach turn out. The glory of victory now is the ultimate prize, and we're obsessed with immediate results. When we become obsessed with immediate results in the church, too quickly it becomes about building our own kingdoms rather than building God's kingdom. Too quickly we, we want to build our church rather than trusting in Jesus to build His church. So when we fail to trust God's approach, what is often revealed in is our, our hearts. In our hearts, is that we actually just really want to feel like we're winning right now, rather than know that God has won and will win. 
And so here's the kicker. When we do this, we think it is for our benefit, for the benefit of our church. We, we can very quickly come up with a really you know, w- w- weird ways to twist it around in our minds so that we feel like, oh, you know, this is for the benefit of whoever, the church, whatever. But it's actually to our harm. It's to our harm because there's a second reason to follow God's blueprint. Blessings from the owner. And we see this in the second verse of this greeting. There is uh, the second half where it declares that recipient, Timothy, being addressed. And Paul loves and wants what's best for Timothy, wants what's best for the church that he's over. Paul knows that Timothy has this critical ingredient, faith. He says, my child in the faith, so there's a personal aspect, my true child. There's this personal, I know you, Timothy. I know your faith. You have faith, this critical ingredient. But the letter is, while being primarily written to Timothy, is not exclusively written to him. It's not only written to him, but it's also to be read in the whole church at Ephesus. And we know this because at the very end of the letter, in 1 Timothy 6, 21, it says, he ends it by saying, grace be with you, and the you in Greek is plural. And so he addresses the beginning of the letter to Timothy, my true child of the faith, but at the end he's saying, you all church in Ephesus. And so this letter will challenge Timothy personally, but also will challenge those he is to teach. It will challenge him personally, it will challenge him in his teaching of others, and it will challenge the others to whom he is teaching. As a spiritual father, Paul wants God's blessings for his spiritual son and for his spiritual grandchildren, right? Those of you who are blessed to be grandparents know what that's like. What are these blessings and where are they from? Well, the blessings are, the, are these. Grace, mercy, and peace, he says. Grace, mercy, and peace. And this is really the essence of the Christian faith. I want to look at each of these just briefly. Typically in Paul's greetings, he would say grace and peace, but here he adds mercy. Grace and peace certainly are, are essential to what it means to be Christian. But what, what do we mean when we say grace anyways? Oftentimes people use grace as sort of a shorthand for overlooking sins or not making a big deal about it. Like you do something bad, oh, grace, grace on you, it's okay. You know, oh, grace, like, don't worry about it. Well, well, if they actually sinned, then I'm not. I'm not sure that's the best. <laughs> I'm not sure that's the best approach. So, what is grace? Grace, when used of God to us, when it's when we're talking about God's grace to us, God's saving activity, Ephesians two eight. We think of it primarily as the effects of that. Uh, that it affects that initial step, us being justified. We are now, we weren't justified before God, now we are justified before God. I wasn't saved, now I am saved. We, that's how we usually think of grace. But it's far more than that. Here Paul writes to Timothy and to a church who, who is, he, Timothy is Christian. They are already saved in that sense. And yet he's saying, grace to you. What does he mean? Grace is far more than just what gets us in to the church. It is what brings us through and perfects us. T- Titus 2, 11 through 12, great, it says there that grace is not merited by our works, but it does produce in us godly lives. 
2 Corinthians 9, 8, it says there that, that where grace abounds, we can do every good work. And so while our good works don't merit grace, grace, it says, rightly, true grace from God to us will produce godliness. It will produce good works in our lives. In fact, without that grace, we are unable to, to do the things we ought to do. So God's grace will always produce those things. And then mercy, mercy is this thing that's added that's not typically in his, his letters, but he, he adds it in First and Second Timothy When we're talking about human interactions, the word that's translated grace here usually means compassion or mercy for, for those who are uh, in unfortunate or needy situations. But typically when it's talking about God to us, God's mercy to us, especially when it's used in conjunction with grace, it conveys our need for divine favor in the face of our sin. Mercy, in that sense, replaces wrath. You see, when, when you sin, what you deserve as a consequence of that is actually the wrath of God. You have wronged a holy and perfect God. We don't stop and think about that because we don't know too many people who are holy, right? We don't really grasp the gravity and the reality and the the, the vastness of what it means that God is completely other than us, that he's completely perfect in every way, that he's completely righteous, that he never does a wrong thing, that he's perfectly clean and pure in all in every way, that he, he's unimaginable to us in his immensity. And that when we sin, is first and foremost an offense to our creator who did not design us for sinning. It did not create us for sin. And so we fail to recognize the wrath of God is rightly, justly deserving to us. That, that consequences for our sin is ex precisely what we ought to expect. And yet, oftentimes, we don't get that. Oftentimes... Oftentimes, like a, like a child who does something wrong and they expect, oh, here, 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 here it comes. Mom or dad decide not to apply the discipline that they know is deserved. Sometimes that's us with God. Mercy replaces the wrath we deserve. Listen, Christian or not, if, if you are the fact that you are still alive today is the mercy of God. The fact that you have breath, that God has not yet wiped you off of this world for your disobedience to him is his mercy already displayed. How often do we assume, presume on that kindness and the patience of God to us. The third thing is peace. Peace is more than just non-conflict, right? Though it's not less than that, it's this enduring stability and harmony. When the Bible talks about peace, it's, it's like a, uh, we, we're, we're whole 
in a sense. Harmony with God, but also with all of creation, even within ourselves, we have harmony from God. That do, it's harmony that comes because, first off, we're no longer out of reconciliation with our Creator. Through Christ, we are reconciled to Him, and then that reconciliation produces renewal and restoration in other places, inner peace that comes from God. Even in our problems in the world, we can have peace. Even in the midst of conflict, we can extend peace because we have peace with an almighty God. Grace deals with, let me summarize it like this, grace deals with the guilty verdict we deserve for sin. Mercy relieves the pain of the consequences of that sin. And peace is a positive consequence of harmony with God as Christ's death and resurrection atones for those sins and restores our relationship with God and creation. Those are the blessings that come from God. Uh, those are the blessings that come to us, but who do they come from? Well, they come from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, we think about grace, mercy, and peace uh, the grace, mercy, and peace of Jesus, we typically think about Jesus' work in initially bringing us to salvation. We think about Jesus on a cross. We think about Jesus, the suffering servant. But here, he identifies this grace, mercy, and peace with the current roles of God as Father and Jesus as Lord. In other words, these blessings come from our authority. They come from a throne, and we don't sit on it. God is our Father, and Jesus is our Lord. He is King. He's boss. The love, the love Timothy knows Paul has for him as his spiritual father uh, is, is um, eclipsed by the love of God the Father for him. The, the, the authority that Paul has over Timothy and over the church as an apostle is eclipsed even by the authority of Jesus as Lord. It's God's right and duty to tell his church how to function. And that should be enough on its own, right? God said it, so I should do it. But, that's, but our God is good, and He does so much more than that. I think about this. Some may think, well, God, God has blessed me with salvation. I guess the least I can do is you know, obey some of His commands. How often is that kind of what's actually happening in our heart? Well, God has saved me, so I guess I'll... I guess I probably ought to do a couple of these at least, you know, like, like a bad employee, you know, as if his instructions were somehow in conflict with his blessings. Or perhaps we're just hoping for, you know, some blessings alongside of the, you know, the commands over here. You know, these commands are really hard, but, but hopefully if I do these, then I'll get a couple of these blessings over here as well, you know. Uh, and, then, and then what happens in our heart is we begin to obey as much as we perceive that God's blessings are, are outweighing the difficulty of His commands, right? Well, you know, I, I, I've got, I'm on a 10 on blessing right now, so I can at least get up to a 9 on the hard commands thing. I, I feel like I'm at a 5 now, so I'm only going to do up to a 4 on the commands, you know, cause, or 5, you know, because it's got to be outweighed. Well, that's not how this thing works. That's transactional. That's transactional in church. Your relationship with God is not transactional. 
I don't believe that's what Paul is presenting here. You see, our relationship with God is covenantal. You remember I said in Ephesians 5 that, that Jesus' relationship to the church is like a marriage. That, in fact, the essence of what marriage is comes from the relationship of Jesus to his church. That Jesus, the relationship of Jesus to the church predates marriage, even. It wasn't like, it got, God, when he invented marriage all the way back in Genesis, actually didn't invent that totally from scratch because he had already had the relationship of Jesus to his church in mind. It's derivative of that. Marriage is a covenant. A covenant is not transactional, nor is it merely just a loving relationship. It's something so much more. It's a commitment under God in which obedience to the covenant brings greater blessings than you would have had otherwise, and breaking that covenant brings greater curses than you would have had otherwise. That's how a covenant works. When the grace of Jesus saves us, we also receive God as Father and Jesus as Lord. In other words, we get ahead of the house. We get a husband. We get a father. That's his position. He's the head of the house in love. He fulfills his commitments always. And we are rightly obligated to submit to him. But here's the funny thing about how covenants work, like marriage. Uh, When we fulfill our commitments to love Jesus by obeying, that doesn't only bless God, it, it, it somehow blesses us as well. The grace, mercy, and peace of God is made manifest not to the side of or apart from our obedience to Him, but through our obedience to Him. This can't be transactional. It must be done in faith. I think that's why Paul makes a point to say, my true child in the faith is so essential because you... Covenants take faith. Covenants take trust, just as Timothy has to trust God's word. When you choose to obey God, you have to trust, yeah, God, this really is a blessing to me. God really will bless me here. This really is better. There will be challenges we go through First Timothy in that. Is that really better to do it that way? You see, in this kind of covenantal relationship, you don't always see immediate results. You know, transactional relationships, you put the quarter in, you get the soda, right? But that's not how covenants work. That's not how your marriage works. Those of you who are married. And if you think it is, then, then, then we should have a talk because you're probably, if you're not already in trouble, you're going to be in trouble. I'm just going to tell you. Listen, if you do something to show your wife love today and then tomorrow she doesn't do something you expected her to do in return and you turn around and you respond, but I did that yesterday. What that proves is you don't love her, you love yourself. Because the only reason you did that was to get something for yourself. You didn't do it for her. That's transactional, but covenants are not transactional. Faith and love or something different. In fact, when you do that, what ends up happening is you actually hurt your marriage. You actually end up hurting your marriage. You actually end up bringing curses on that relationship. 
But when you get both people in a marriage that have figured this out, I'm telling you, blessings bubble up like a spring of water from, from which you have no idea where it comes. When, when, you, when you're not worried about what you can get, but both parties are just worried about what they can give, the sum is greater than the parts. And you, you go, I don't, I don't understand how I could just concentrate on, on doing what I ought to do, and somehow I actually feel like I've, I'm more blessed than if I would have tried to get what I wanted to get. And yet that's God's economy. That's how he does it in marriage. That's how he set it up from the creation of the world. That's how he set up his church. But this isn't a sermon on marriage. I'm primarily talking about God and his his church, our Father and Lord, will hold up His end of the covenant. You can bet on it. All right, so the framers of a house build where the architect and engineer say, or else it could be catastrophic. They build where the general contractor says, right? Our little wall, you know, it only created a creaking sound, but it, it could have been so much worse, Right? It could have been so much worse. One of, the, one of the deadliest accidental structure disasters in American history is right here in Kansas City. Did you know that? Uh, downtown KC, there's a hotel. Uh, the, I think it's the Regency Hyatt. And at, in the hotel, there is a, a glass, glass walkway in the lobby and it's multiple stories. There's a second story, a third story, and a fourth story walkway. And the way that it was designed, it was designed so that the, the second story walkway hung uh, uh, right up under the fourth story walkway. And, and, and I'll try to explain this a little bit, but um, there were supports that came down, multiple supports that came down from the, uh, the structure above, and it went through the fourth, they were supposed to go through the fourth story walkway, and then there was a nut that, that held the fourth story, that would hold the fourth story walkway on, along here, and then that support would continue down to the second story walkway, and then there was, it would hold the second story right under it. But as they were building uh, uh, this structure, that was really complicated to, to do, to get this long, one single long steel pole to come down through one walkway into the other walkway. You know, it was just expensive. It was laborious. It was, it was going to take a long time. So they decided, you know what, we could, we could do one better than these engineers. We'll have one pole that comes down in to the four-story walkway, and then we'll do a new pole. And it'll come off of uh, 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 just beside, and it will go down to the second floor walkway. And you think, well, that, that, I guess that makes sense. What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. Whereas before, the weight of the, just the fourth-story walkway would be on those nuts, now the weight of the second and fourth story were on just the nuts holding up the fourth-story walkway. And they weren't designed for that. And so one day, shortly after it was built, they had a massive party. There are thousands of people in the lobby, people all over those walkways, and the entire thing collapsed. Some of you guys remember that, I'm sure. The entire thing collapsed, and 116 people died. They made the ballroom into a temporary morgue to lay all the bodies. 
the weight of all of those people, they said, they said that it should have collapsed at a third of the weight as what was actually on it. That nut pushed through the steel I-beam and the whole thing went down. Boom, boom, boom. People on the top floor uh, restaurant said it felt like an earthquake had happened. The, the, it can last for a while doing it the wrong way, but eventually it will be catastrophic. Church, we must follow God's blueprint for his church. And listen, as we go through this book, I can almost guarantee you that there are going to be things that we cover that when you hear it, you go, oh, I don't know that I like that. I'm not sure I agree with that. And, and I can promise you that because, because that's been my experience in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy probably has been the book that, that has most changed me in the last seven or so years of my life since, I decided to, since we decided to come plant a church. But it's also been the book that's been the most encouraging to me. So it's simultaneously been the most challenging and the most encouraging. And I would expect that as we go through it, it may be that for us as well. It may be that for us as well. And there's going to be times when you're going to go, you're going to, I'm going to say something, you're going to read something, you're going to go, really? But will we conform to the word of our good Father and Savior? Or will we conform to what we think sounds wisest and best? It's the question we have to ask ourselves. So I want to challenge you today as we jump into 1 Timothy, as we continue in this for the next couple of months, I want to challenge you to make two decisions today, two decisions this week before, we, before next Sunday. One, decide beforehand, decide beforehand to obey whatever it says. Decide beforehand, God, you know what's best. I will obey it even if I don't like it. And then second, decide beforehand to submit your feelings to it. This is, a, this is maybe the harder one. Because, because you can go, okay, I'll, I don't like it, but I'll do it. But it's a whole other thing to allow God to change your heart about that thing. To allow God to, to take something that you didn't like and turn it into something you realize is a wonderful grace from God. All right, that's the challenge for us as we jump into this book and as we seek to follow God's blueprint for His church. Let's pray.